The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. And I'm delighted that we have Emmy-nominated, multi-award-winning documentary director and feature film editor Eva Reynolds with us today for the Culture Club. You know work like Phil Linnett's songs for While I'm Away, uh, the acclaimed The Farthest, which was the brilliant space exploration film. And you have, of course, Joyride out this year with Olivia Colman. Eva, thank you very much for joining us. If people haven't seen Joyride, it's more widely available now, isn't it, outside of the cinemas? Yeah, I was in the cinema in Ireland in the UK in July, uh, into August, and now it's um, going into VOD. It'll be on most streaming platforms shortly, including the IFI home, so people can catch it in the comfort of their own homes shortly. What was it like having an Oscar-winning actor with you and Olivia Colman? Oh, yeah, it was fantastic. You know, a dream come true. She's uh, she's everything you think she's going to be when you see her on TV and in the films. You know, she's she's a brilliant actress, obviously, an incredible collaborator. She's kind, she's sweet, she's really, really funny. She's a real team player. So, Funny enough, I spoke to people in Kerry who had met her last year and were very impressed by how her humility as much as anything else and her warmth yeah, that you know, she didn't find her a jumped up Hollywood star by no, any means. No, she's, she's completely the opposite to that and in fact most most times we were out on the street in, in Tralee or, or Broad Kerry filming people would be trying to stand around taking photos of her and she always went over and said don't take photos now but if you wait till I'm finished working I'll come over and we can do selfies and whatever and she always did and really really nice person uh, really wonderful to have around What was it like moving into I mean you're, you're better known perhaps for documentary work so what was it like doing a feature length movie like that? Yeah it was my first uh Featured drama to direct, but I had I was better known for I had directed three feature documentaries before that, um, but previous to that, my other life before I ever went into directing was as a feature film editor. So I, I have a lot, an awful lot of experience in drama. So I wasn't I wasn't intimidated, but that might have been a little bit of innocence on my part. But I really enjoyed it, and in fact, kind of approached them both in the same way. You know, has the best way to tell this story and treated it accordingly. How did you get into that from having had a background in physics and maths at Trinity College? <laughs> yeah, I went into uh, joined the film club in Trinity, um, and they were making a short film there. A wonderful Irish filmmaker called Alan Gilson and directing a short film with um, uh, Booker winner Anne Enright starring in it you know so it was that time I, I just joined the film society and made a film and fell in love with filmmaking and became an editor but as a traditional kind of trained on the job and an apprentice editor and all the way up through the through the ranks on the floor that's how I but presumably then the physics and maths was helpful to making the farthest, was it? Sure was, yeah, absolutely. Physics and maths is, you know, one of my great loves, space and astronomy is a, and I'm really into popular science and, you know, I, I keep up with all of that in my in my normal life. But so making the farthest was a dream come true. The Voyager spacecraft had been a bit of a, a hero of mine my entire life, you know, what it, what it was achieving out there in outer space. So to make it and to get to meet all our heroes in NASA was, uh, was incredible. Let's go to your choices for the culture club we ask every guest to nominate the first single or piece of music that they remember buying and uh, it's great that people are really honest because they mightn't listen now to the first piece of music they ever bought would you ever listen to racy lay your love on me <laughs> i know i think you, you put that in that question in to, to, to design to embarrass you know but it probably is a, a palate cleanser to see how obvious honest people are going to be uh, it was the first single we, we bought myself and my sisters were totally devoted to them on top of the pops this cute little dance where they all danced in a row so that's really why we bought it I don't think it's got longevity it certainly never got played in my house since but uh, but you're going to have to listen to it now
Lucy from 1978, the first choice of Ema Reynolds on the Culture Club. So let's get to the music you really love. Is that my reputation in tatters now? Not at all. We've had far worse than that, <laughs> believe me. Favourite album. You've nominated a couple of albums, Neil Young's After the Gold Rush and David Bowie's Station to Station. Tell us a little bit about your liking for Neil Young first. Yeah, I have a huge love of Neil Young. In fact, Neil Young, after the Gold Rush or Harvest, could have easily have pipped David Bowie to the top. And any one of David Bowie's could have made the, <laughs> the top choice as well. But Station to Station uh, is a real favourite. You know, it's a, it's a, a play on repeat. I think it gets, it gets deeper and deeper every time. So you asked me about Neil Young. I love Neil Young. I saw him last year in Kilkenny with uh, Bob Dylan. Well, playing on the same night and uh, I love him I've loved him all my life I saw him many years ago did an acoustic set in Dublin um, which which was incredible and I've seen him many times since that so uh, I just love I love his I love the sound of his voice I love his politics I love Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young I love everything about Neil Young but, uh, Bowie though much more is our colourful flamboyant character yeah they're quite different aren't they you know and I, I think I'm like that with music anyway I'm a little bit magpie you know I, I wander all over the, the the musical spectrum a little bit, but I love Bowie. I love the sound of his voice. I love the I love the shape shifting nature of his music over the years, and uh, that album Wild, Wild as the Wind is one of my favourite songs as well. So, uh, well, the track that we have is Golden Years. This is the third time of the week we've spoken about Bowie on The Last Word because last night John Cadell in our music spot was talking about the soundtrack to Moonage Daydream as recommended as pick of the week and Brian Lloyd in the movies last Thursday night was recommending this new Brett Morgan directed documentary on Bowie's life, Moonage Daydream. Have you seen that yet? I haven't seen it yet, no, but I believe it's fantastic. I think that's probably the type of thing you would absolutely love to go to. Favourite bands, you've nominated a couple as well. You've nominated Steely Dan and Pink Floyd. Tell me about Steely Dan first. You're only about the second or third person, I think, in the four years or so that we've done the Culture Club through. Remember Steely Dan for us. You know, Steely Dan gets unfairly maligned, in my view, as kind of prog rock, you know, this kind of... Uh, in fact, every time I put it on Spotify, every time I turn on Steely Dan, the playlist suggests that I might want to listen to some yacht rock. So <laughs> I think it's getting pegged as that kind of, you know, atonal or a little dreamy or California, but I love the sound of it. And in fact, I know we were talking off air a little bit about Thin Lizzy. You know, I think you can find little echoes of Steely Dan all over the place, including uh, Thin Lizzy's fourth album Nightlife um, I just love I love the feel it makes me feel uh, I saw them a couple of years ago on The Point and uh, I don't know it's real story it's American it's a particular time it's uh, it just goes straight to my uh, my and, feeling of being by the sea <laughs> and brilliant musicianship now yeah. your choice other choice those definitely falls into the prog rock category doesn't it Pink Floyd yeah I mean incredible and, and I've never seen Pink Floyd although I did see The Wall a few years ago Um uh, 
I just love the sound of Pink Floyd. I love I Wish You Were Here and Animals and um, Dark Side of the Moon, I think, are incredible, incredible albums, you know, and, and really uh, transformative, you know, on, on the on the musical scene. And I got, I got the chance to use um, Us and Them in the Farthest, uh, which is a beautiful scene in my space documentary when the, the spacecraft is leaving Saturn. And uh, it's one of the highlights of my career, I think, you know, my, my personal journey with my own work, you know, when I see that scene, I just makes my heart sore. Track you mentioned those while we have. Wish you were here. So, so you think you could tell heaven from hell, blue skies from pain. Can you tell a green field? Rock and I said Pink Floyd. That's very definitely not prog rock, and there was an awful lot more to Pink Floyd in various generations. So, best gig that you're ever at, you have to have a Tin Lizzy one in there, don't you? Yeah, I did because, as, as you mentioned, I made a feature doc called Songs for While I'm Away about Phil Linet, and uh, the, the one of the centerpieces of that film was their last gig in Dublin in 1983 when Tin Lizzy were breaking up. They broke up a few months later in in October in Germany, but that was their last couple of gigs in the RDS in. Um, in Dublin and I went to boat nights Saturday and the Sunday and uh, cried along the whole way through and couldn't believe that was the end of the line with, with Tin Lizzy it was an incredible gig I see now and I can see in the film that he was failing a little um, uh, fading a little and you know I can see they're struggling a little I certainly didn't on the night in 1983 all I saw was the the passion the charisma the energy the sex appeal I just thought they were incredible I think that's the same year I saw them play at the City Hall in Cork I think it probably would have been this is the Thunder and Lightning tour wasn't yes, it yes it was yeah, yeah. that's yeah. the same year it was a mighty night yeah, yeah. and it was a small small stadium you couldn't call the City Hall in Cork a stadium small enough venue but by God did they make it rock he could really like he just held the audience in the palm of his hand and you know I couldn't believe they. I actually didn't believe they were breaking up. I thought they were just on some sort of minor break for a couple of couple of years while Philip did some solo work. But uh, sadly, the story didn't unfold like that. Which uh, is and tragic. I know you were helpful to us previously in getting Scott Gorham to do this very culture club as well, and he was great. He's a hoot, isn't he? Within <laughs> but other gigs, you have also nominated James Vincent McMorrow. Yeah, I saw him, uh, it was his first album, I saw him unplugged in the Pepper Canister Church there on Mount Street in Dublin. And... Uh, you know, it was really beautiful. Like, I mean, he's got an incredible voice and with the four four backing singers and I, I can't even remember if it was instruments, maybe one or two instruments. It was absolutely sublime. Yeah. 
And then you have at the other extreme, Metallica, like you saw in Fresno in California. <laughs> no, that was just a that was just a lucky break. Uh, we went off for my fill in and fill. We interviewed James Hetfield in Fresno backstage, and then he, he gave us guest passes into their to their gig. And it was I mean it was a different world. I, I'm not a huge Metallica fan, but it was it was wild. There was like about 200 drones over the stage with lights, and it was screaming fans. It was really it was really interesting and and energetic and exciting experience. But the bit of music that we've picked out from is the Keith Jarrett Trio. Tell us about this. I love I love jazz. I love uh, piano jazz in particular. I love Brad Meldo. I love Keith Jarrett. We took a just went over for 24 hours to see him in um, this beautiful uh, concert hall on the shores of Lake Lucerne and uh, it was the classic classic trio and uh, it was beautiful beautiful to see it. I mean I, all the Paris Cold concerts and all that, they would be big favourites in my house to play of an evening. Well, the track that we have is from a gig in San Sebastian as far back as 1985. Fascinating rhythm. Trio. Ever see him again after that? Yeah, gosh, we saw him about a year later. We saw him in Rome and uh, he did almost the identical gig, including all the, the kind of the asides and the ad-lib bits. And we were heartbroken that it was a, it was a performance rather than something spontaneous. Let's move on to movies. And uh, are your picks going to be documentaries or drama for us? Oh, yeah, I think I... I think all my selections are drama, but I love a good documentary too, as you know. But uh, yeah, it was hard enough to choose as a filmmaker because, you know, I watch a lot of movies and I wear two hats. I sometimes watch movies for research, for inspiration, you know, to to kind of analyse the tone or a performance or a cinematographer. And then sometimes, like everyone else, I watch them just sitting on my couch <laughs> to relax and to to feel good and to be inspired. So it was it was hard to whittle this down. So give us some of your choices. What sort of movies would you put in your list of the greats? I said it really depends on the, the, mood, the mood I'm in, but if I'm looking for work, I love Nick Rogue. I love uh, European artists like Joachim Trier. I love Claire Denis. I love the Dardenne brothers. Um, but most of my favourites are science fiction. I'm a huge science fiction fan. Alien, Aliens, 2001, Blade Runner, um, recently Arrival. And my favourite film of the last few years is a film called High Life by Claire Denis, which is a really creepy and wonderful science fiction film. But I think though the clip we have comes from Blade Runner. Uh, Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, concludes that Rachel, played by Sean Young, is a replicant, but a very good one. You're watching a stage play. A banquet is in progress. The guests are enjoying an appetizer of raw oysters. The entree consists of boiled dog. Would you step out for a few moments, Rachel? Thank you. She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot? I don't get it, Tyrone. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced. 
Took more than a hundred for Rachel, didn't it? She doesn't know. She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can it not know what it is? Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. Rachel is an experiment, nothing more. We began to recognize in them strange obsession. After all, they are emotionally inexperienced with only a few years in which to store up the experiences which you and I take for granted. If we gift them with the past, we create a cushion or pillow for their emotions and consequently we can control them better. Memories. You're talking about memories. Okay, Blade Runner was remade, wasn't it, after a recently 21st century version? Yeah, it's not a it's not a remake, it's like a sequel. A sequel, okay, <laughs> yeah. but God, the way we were has been remade. What do you make of the idea of remakes and sequels and things like that when you have classics from that era? Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting to see how they get reimagined, you know. I thought A Star is Born has been remade three or four times, you know, and I think every time you find something new and some new, you know, new sen- modern sensibilities enter the fray and that twists it again and again, so... I like it. I didn't really, I wasn't a huge fan of the, the new Blade Runner, you know, uh, even though I love Denis Villeneuve's work, I love his visual style. I really think it's stunning and stunning to, to look at all his work, but uh, I didn't really like the re- what it had, did, what it, it had and it's going done to, be a to TV the Blade series Runner. now, apparently, mm. as well. Mm. And what about favourite play? Yeah, <laughs> this is a strange one. Um, I saw a play, actually, I think I chose two, but you one did. of them was. Um, I saw it in the Dublin Dublin Theatre Festival a few years ago. This uh, puppet show, this um, Dutch theatre show called Hotel Modern, did this play called Camp, which involved a recreation of Auschwitz on the floor of a theatre. We were all sitting up pretty high with these like tiny three-inch puppets with cameras in amongst the amongst the 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 tiny puppets showing you the the reality. And it was the strangest thing because it involved this massive perspective shift in terms of you were both in with these lifeless puppets but feeling their world and also in this kind of godlike position looking down on this I mean it was it was the most incredible thing I ever saw if I got a chance to see it again I would in a, in a heartbeat but I think you've selected but you also have Death of a Salesman yeah. with Brian Dennehy as Willie Loman yeah I saw that in New York on Broadway I went back four times to see him again and again it was the most extraordinary performance you know like a real uh, but then he was a big man, big, big man. presence. And, you know, the frailty of Willie Loman as he unfurls in the play. Every night I saw it, uh, he got like a 20-minute standing ovation. It was, it was incredible. Let's hear a clip from it featuring Brian Dennehy and Elizabeth Franz. You might always be in contradictory. Well, I thought it would be a surprise. Why did you open a window in here? For God's sake. They're all open here. They boxed us in here. Bricks and windows. Windows and bricks. We should have bought the land next door. Bricks lined with cars. Not a breath of fresh air in the neighborhood. The grass don't grow anymore. You can't raise a carrot in the backyard. They should have had a law against apartment houses. <coughs> remember, remember those two beautiful elm trees out there? When I and Biff, we, we hung the swing between them. Yeah, like being a million miles from the city. <sighs> Should have arrested the builder for cutting those down. They massacred the neighborhood. Uh, more and more I think of those days, Linda. <laughs> this time of year, it was lilac. Wisteria. Uh, the then the peonies would come out of uh, 
daffodils. What fragrance in this room. Brian Dennehy there, late Brian Dennehy in Death of a Salesman. Books, you have loads of authors on your list, some of whom have actually done the Culture Club as well. Uh, Donna Ryan only did it very recently, and you've also mentioned John McGarhan, and maybe Donna Ryan has sort of settled into the shoes of John McGarhan to a certain absolutely. extent. Absolutely, he's, son of, he's definitely son of, son of John McGarhan. They're both in the same tradition of that uh, rural Ireland. The honesty, the, the vividness, the poetry of their writing, I absolutely roll around and I love it. We're hoping to direct, we're hoping to develop a Donna Ryan script, a uh, book into a uh, TV series, so I'm in the oh, middle brilliant. looking at that. I'm just reminded as you say that, Donald was only here doing the Culture Club for all in the last six weeks or so. John McGarren came in for interview, it must be nearly 20 years ago, and actually very similar personalities in some respects start almost gentle but very very knowing about local Ireland and very strong against about women characters as humble well humble and, and, yeah. and very very thoughtful yeah absolutely you also have Richard Ford who's also done a culture club for us and has been a regular guest on the programme who's an absolutely terrific writer oh my gosh yeah, like one of the greats and his uh, sports writer trilogy I think is is right up there with some of the greatest American literature of all time I'm jealous I never heard him on your show I must uh, look that up on back you also have Elizabeth Strout. Yeah, I love her. I love her. Um, I love the Olive Ketteridge and I love the Lucy Bartons and, and her recent book, um, Oh, William, I think it's called. Yeah, I think it's nominated for the Booker now this year. It's incredible. Her writing is so beautiful, so delicate, so human, so humane. But your favourite, I believe, is Margaret Atwood. Yeah, I've, I, you know, you, you, you asked the question about the favourite and it's actually very hard to, I think, whittle down anything. But I think that... Handmaid's Tale, when I read it as a teenager, really um, changed my life. You know, I think it, it really had a profound effect on me. It was the first time I was aware as a young reader of hearing uh, a woman's voice in my mind. You know, I think I had I think I had internalized the idea that even as a young woman, that the male experience was universal and that female was other. And it's so I was reading this book as a young feminist and, and, you know, having read science fiction for years, you know, Larry Niven and Isaac Asimov and Heinlein. And then suddenly there was this female voice and I could perceive her, the writer being a female. It was the first time that had ever happened to me as a young woman. And uh, yeah, the, the book was transformative for me. OK, let's hear a little bit of Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. Uh, Elizabeth Moss as Offred, narrating from Chapter 2 of The Handmaid's Tale. Chapter 2. A chair. A table. A lamp. Above, on the white ceiling, a relief ornament in the shape of a wreath, and in the center of it, a blank space, plastered over, like the place in a face where the eye has been taken out. There must have been a chandelier once. They've removed anything you could tie a rope to. A window. Two white curtains. Under the window, a window seat with a little cushion. When the window is partly open, it only opens partly, the air can come in and make the curtains move. I can sit in the chair or on the window seat, hands folded, and watch this. Sunlight comes in through the window, too, and falls on the floor, which is made of wood and narrow strips, highly polished. I can smell the polish. There's a rug on the floor, oval of braided rags. This is the kind of touch they like. Folk art, archaic, made by women in their spare time from things that have no further use. A return to traditional values. Waste not, want not. 
I am not being wasted. Why do I want? Elizabeth Moss reading from Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. Television. We're definitely of a very similar generation, Emer, when I see the list of things that you remember from your childhood. The magician with Bill Bixby, the incredible Hulk, Starsky <laughs> and Hutch, Cagney and Lacey. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely giving my age away there. Absolutely love Starsky and Hutch and we were glued to Cagney and Lacey. Cagney and Lacey were, uh, were two of the greatest women of all time. I'd love to see that again. Let's hear a scene from season one of the Emmy Award winning cop procedural drama starring Sharon Glenn and Tyne Daly. We know Hauser had a gun. Why are you talking to me? Because you removed it from the scene. That's not true. If it were true, you'd arrest me. We arrested the man who robbed Hyken's pharmacy. He made a statement that Jack Hauser not only had a gun, but Hauser fired at him. Right now, there are six officers from crime scene investigation looking for that bullet. When they find it, then they'll find it. Then we'll arrest you. If someone, let's say someone did remove the gun from the alley, he could be prosecuted, correct? It's a felony. I looked it up. He could also be charged with possession of a weapon. In the third degree, also a felony. And all this stuff is negotiable, Doctor. Jerry Reed is a good policeman. Right now, his life is going down the sewer. I got to him first, in the alley. The gun was next to him. I slipped it under my jacket. Would you take it out, please? found the gun in the alley, everything we've tried to put together in the neighborhood would have been destroyed. One round fired. I have a child at home. I didn't want to keep it in the house. Well, I don't blame you. Sir, we're going to need you to come down to the station, make a statement. If you people were doing your job, none of this would have ever happened. Cagney and Lacey. Like you can't underestimate the effect those women had on young women in the in the seventies and eighties. You know, it wasn't as it wasn't as common to see uh, women in those roles. You know, they were surrounded by all the Kojaks and the Ironsides and Columbos and streets of San Francisco. You know, and suddenly there was this young, foul mouth, hard drinking kind of you know, wise cracking women and. I think one, I never know if it was Cagney or Lacey was single, you know, she was, she was in bars, you know, like it was, it, it was a different time, but it was, uh, it was just brilliant to see women just living like that. Not surprisingly, you're into bars, Battlestar Galactica and Star Trek and Doctor Who, given <laughs> what you told us earlier. But what about modern day stuff? What do you like now? You know, my, uh, he, I think we're in a golden age of television. There's some incredible stuff to watch. Um, I have a major obsession with Better Call Saul. Have you finished it yet? Yes, I have finished we it. We won't give any spoilers away, but it is magnificent television. Magnificent, you know, and to have landed it and to have, you know, delivered on the the, the quality, not only the cine, you know, the filmmaking quality, the story quality, but the human quality, like to deliver on the characters, the promise of these characters that we'd followed for six years. Uh, flawless. 
and succession. Yeah, look, my other two choices were succession and severance. Succession is, I think, it's the most incredible magic trick of all time to create these characters that are so unlikable, like but deeply compelling. And you you root for them and you want them to do okay, and to your you know you're tuning in every week to see how they get on. And I don't know if you've seen Severance, but Severance is. Uh, really really mind mind twisty really that's cl- next on my list good, I good, need good. something new listen to finish we do ask everyone for a cultural buried treasure that you would recommend to anyone something perhaps overlooked and I think you sort of made tangential reference earlier by quoting Tootsie because you nominated the films of Elaine May who was Elaine May? She's she's an incredible filmmaker, an actor, a comedian, a writer, a director who only made four films in the seventies or, or one in the in the mid eighties. Um, very very overlooked, but an incredible artist. She, she my friend Martin Fanning, who's an incredible uh, film editor, put me onto her f- a few years ago. She's really really smart, really funny. Her four films are all incredible. Um, she's just got this incredible. She was a brilliant improvisational. She started her career as a as a, as a two-hander with Mike Nichols. They did uh, improvisational comedy in the fifties. What were other movies as well as Tootsie? The four. So she co-wrote or wrote some parts of Tootsie, and then um, the four films that she directed, wrote and directed, or uh, she didn't write them all, but wrote most of them, was a New Leaf. Um, Heartbreak Kid, which was remade a few years ago, not very well with Ben Stiller, a film called Mikey and Nicky, and then she made uh, Ishtar, which is considered one of the greatest uh, fil- film cinema flops of all time, but it's a fantastically funny film. Yeah, a lot of people would say retrospectively it wasn't burdened by the it big budget. Yeah. They say it would be a terrific movie on its own right. Listen, what we'll do is we'll play out with a little bit from Tootsie. This is Dustin Hoffman as Michael Dorsey and Sidney Pollack as his agent explaining why no one will hire him. Thank you very much, Ema Reynolds, for joining us on the Culture Club this evening. Look, I don't want to argue about it, okay? I'm going to raise the $8,000 myself so I can produce his play, and I want you to send me up for anything. I don't care what it is. I will do dog commercials on television. I will do radio voiceovers. Michael, I can't put you up for any of that. Why not? Because no one will hire you. Oh, that's not true, man. I bust my ass to get a part right, and you know I do. Yes, and you bust everybody else's ass, too. That's what you do. A guy's got four weeks to put on a play. You think he wants to sit and argue about whether or not Tolstoy can, can walk when he's dying or walk when he's talking or sing oh, when please, he's walking? Was two years ago, and that guy is an idiot. They and can't he- all be idiots, Michael. You argue with everybody. You've got one of the worst reputations in this town, Michael. Nobody will hire you. Are you saying that nobody in New York will work with me? Oh, no, that's too limiting. Nobody in Hollywood wants to work with you either. I can't even send you up for a commercial. You play the tomato for 30 seconds. They want a half a day over schedule because you wouldn't sit down. Yes, it wasn't logical. You were a tomato! A tomato doesn't have logic. A tomato can't move. That's what I said. So if he can't move, how's he going to sit down, George? I was a stand-up tomato, a juicy, sexy beefsteak tomato. Nobody does vegetables like me. I did an evening of vegetables off Broadway. I did the best tomato, the best cucumber. I did an endive salad that knocked the critics on their ass. So that's Tootsie, and that's the end of the Culture Club with Emer Reynolds. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today, FM.